Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm Dr. Kara Ong Whaley, Associate Director at the Madison Center, and today joining me is Dr. Abraham Goldberg, Executive Director of the Madison Center. Hi, Abe. How are you, Kara? I'm well. Glad to hear you're well. I am too. Good. Thank you. <laughs> Today we are joined by Dr. Robert Talese, who's chair of the philosophy department at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, and he's also a professor of political science there. Thank you so much for joining us today, Bob. Well, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be talking to you both. So you're here at James Madison University for a conference on civility and disagreement, and you just finished speaking about civility and partisanship. I wonder if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about uh, what you were talking about here at the conference. Sure. So um, the talk was about uh, the ideal of civility, which um, I, I argued is not an ideal of politeness or concessiveness. Um, civility is a requirement that citizens in engaging in political disagreement, um, avoid unnecessary or uncalled for hostility and escalation, which means that in assessing somebody as behaving in a way that's uncivil, I'm not simply talking about the volume of their voice or the tone of their voice, talking about their motives and dispositions and speaking that way. And the problem uh, that I point to in the talk uh, is that um, it turns out that psychologically we're deeply inclined to see those who we perceive to be our political opponents in a negative light. That is, we are inclined to ascribe to them negative traits, dispositions, motives, inclinations. And so um, the argument of the presentation was civility which calls us to assess each other's motives and inclinations, it's going to be a lot more difficult than it looks because it's really hard for us constitutionally. We're constituted such that it's really hard for us to see those who we regard as our political opponents as well-intentioned even. And so um, uh, we tend to over-ascribe incivility to them because everything they do looks to us uncivil. And so the thought is civility is a symptom of a um, democratic uh, failing, but the actual pathology is uh, partisan distrust. In our current era, we often hear calls for the need for civil discourse and the need for civility and applying it to beyond the political realm. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how civility can also be perceived as censorship, sure. particularly by minority groups, and how calls for civility can be used as a means for oppressing That's dissenting right. or minority views. So uh, one interesting thing about civility, the Pew Research Center recently found, majority of Americans think that uh, politics has become too uncivil. We have grown tired of all the rancor and wrangling of politics, and we want to see more cooperation among politicians. Now, what the Pew Research Center also found is that we are strongly inclined to blame incivility on the opposite partisans. And when um, they ask, you know, what can be done to make politics more civil, the response is, well, tell the opposite party to give us more of what we want. Okay, so we all, we all say we want civility, we unilaterally blame the other side for the incivility, and then it turns out that our conception of civility really is just the conception of capitulation, <laughs> of resignation. Um, so there's something, um, uh, some series of puzzles that we might sort of draw out of um, the popular appeals to civility, and you're right, Kara, it's you know, almost everybody yeah, every night on the, on the news and the newspapers is saying, we need more civility. Everybody agrees with that. We don't agree on what that actually is all about or what it really means. Now, I think that you're right that one, I think, popular, but ultimately, I would say, untenable conception of civility is civility as politeness, reservedness, concessiveness, um, uh, a certain kind of um, 
uh, uh, polite and and calm tone, um, norms of uh, decorum. Um, that's a popular conception of what civility requires. But I think ultimately, um, as you were suggesting, and I'm with the people that you were referencing, um, that can't be a properly democratic conception of civility because, well, for two reasons, I would say. One is that um, when you get people who are equal citizens together to disagree, which they will if they're equals, uh, about the things that matter most, they should get exercised, right? You, know, you want to say, yeah, we're arguing about justice and injustice. It's it's inevitable that we're gonna we're going to be animated, and that animation sometimes is going to animatedness is sometimes going to show up as a kind of hostility. So that's inexorable, it seems to me, from democracy. And I think that properly deployed, um, a certain kind of partisan rancor and um, agon, <laughs> to use a Greek word, contest, uh, is part of what democratic politics is all about. Secondly, um, that idea of civility as politeness is, I think, as feminist uh, political theorists and philosophers have pointed out uh, for several decades now, these are just devices for um, that enable powerful people to silence critics. Uh, so, you know, um, Iris Marion Young, uh, back in the 90s, had wonderful analysis of that. So, yeah, like, norms of civility are actually, you know, people who speak with accents now all of a sudden are not going to be civil. People who are more animated in their cultural norms for communication now all of a sudden are going to run afoul of civility. What are these civility norms? They're the norms of privileged white men. Um, and those are the people who are already very powerful. And so when those norms get deployed or get referred to in political discussion, that's really a device of excluding uh, uh, the most vulnerable people from the conversation. So I agree with all that. That's why I want to say, yep, civility has to be consistent with real heated debate about the things that matter. Um, because democracy cannot be a political order in which we all agree. I mean, maybe that would be nice on some occasions, but it's just, it's, it's just not what part of democracy is. Democracy is about disagreeing, but disagreeing in a way that remains respectful of our status as equal citizens. So what I want to suggest is that civility in certain kinds of contexts, and I would fill that in by saying certain kinds of contexts where there are power differentials in play, I would want to say, yeah, civility is consistent with a certain kind of animosity, a certain kind of disruptiveness. I would say in certain kinds of contexts, civility is even consistent with uh, acts of protest and resistance and a kind of um, aggression um, to even the score with the, with the power in a way so that a proper democratic discussion among social equals uh, where there's real disagreement about justice so that that kind of um, discussion can happen. Yeah, that's why I say civility is the norm or the requirement that we avoid undue, unnecessary, uncalled for escalation, which is consistent with there being contexts where escalation is appropriate and in fact might be what civility requires is establishing the civility might require us to sometimes establish the conditions under which a proper democratic debate can happen. Your conception of equal citizens is interesting to me because when we think about who has more barriers to participate in our democracy than others, whether they be motivational barriers, legal barriers, historical barriers, structural barriers, we can look at the numbers and know that, that we can predict who's more and less likely to be politically active, which of course means that our leaders are going to be more responsive to those who are of a certain socioeconomic status, which I see as deeply, deeply concerning, especially when we look at income inequality Absolutely. in this country. I met with somebody yesterday who talked about the first campaign he ever worked on where their strategy was to knock on the doors of likely voters and bypass doors that were unlikely voters and how exclusionary that was. I don't see that 
as being having social equality among right. our citizenry, if we don't have that, and if you accept that, is civility impossible to achieve right now? We don't have to go. We don't have to go there, but I, I, I'm willing to go pretty bleak on, on um, the uh, evaluation of our current. Um, political order. I, I would be willing to argue that um, existing levels of uh, economic and other forms of social inequality are inconsistent with any viable democratic ideal. So I'm willing to say all of that and um, really worry uh, some days um, about whether um, the extent to which existing conditions not merely deviate but run counter to and obstruct any plausible democratic ideal. I, I worry what that means for um, sort of standard philosophical thoughts about um, political legitimacy and authority, mm-hmm. the, 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 the lawfulness of uh, government actions of any kind. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I joke with students sometimes that, you know, a couple of days a week, I sort of wake up and I feel like I'm a philosophical anarchist. I feel like I'm just, again, that's just for our listeners, that's philosophical anarchist is not necessarily a sort of um, bottles and bricks throwing uh, 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 anarchist. A philosophical anarchist is just the person who's committed to the philosophical position that um, no, uh, no, um, or that uh, maybe no, but certainly his own uh, uh, government and uh, political order um, uh, uh, is is authoritative, that is, is legitimate. Um, and so I struggle with that myself. Um, there are questions, even if it is the case that existing levels of inequality of vari- in various registers, even if they do defeat um, any plausible claim that we might have as a country to being uh, in pursuit of, a democ- of, of the democratic ideal, there's still practical, uh, in some cases, moral questions about what we can do. So I think that you're right that um, all of these lofty philosophical and political theoretic ideals are really called into question once you look at the facts on the ground. Um, then there's a separate, and I think it's in part a moral question and not merely a practical or strategic one, of um, uh, what to do. And it might be that um, upholding certain kinds of moral ideals and trying to practice them even under very severely compromised real conditions might still be the best bet, right? Might still be the best thing that we can do is to um, theorize and try to uphold proper democratic ideals despite the fact that real conditions on the ground are so far from being plausible steps on the way towards the ideal um, uh, that... uh, um, uh, maybe civility, maybe civility is impossible. That might not be a reason to abandon it, though. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sometimes things work that way. <laughs> Abe kind of scooped me a little bit because the, one of the questions that I was going to ask was sort of related, but not not putting it in the context of civility, but whether or not we even have democracy, right? Because you define democracy as a moral commitment to self-government among equals in a political and social context. And if that is the definition of democracy, right, and we have so many inequalities and so many historic inequities in access, voice, and participation, do we actually have a democracy in this country? Yeah, this is a... Polity 4, by the way, also just lowered the United States in terms of its ranking in yeah, democracy. Yeah, yeah. So I, we I, can yeah. bring that into this discussion Yeah, as yeah, well. sure, 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 sure. So uh, this is a really, like, d- deeply interesting, intriguing philosophical question. Um, so um, what, one sort of first move uh, in responding to your question, Kara, is say, well, let's make a distinction between definitions of democracy and sort of articulations of the democratic ideal. So I would say democracy is uh, a moral ideal, self-government among social equals amidst ongoing political disagreement about justice. I think that it's a uh, uh, three-tiered ideal. Now, what I want to say about what makes a society democratic or not is the extent to which it is aspiring to that ideal. And by aspiring, I mean more than merely giving lip service to. I mean trying to manifest it, realize it, move towards it, um, and maybe the right way to think uh, in sort of 
practical terms about moving towards an ideal is to what extent do we as a citizenry, as a country, as a group of, uh, of people in the United States, to what extent do we recognize data that show um, obscene forms of social inequality? To what extent do we recognize that as criticizable, as objectionable? The extent to which we recognize that as objectionable is connected to the extent to which we're recognizing and aspiring to the ideal. That's one way that I, I would want to want to play that out. Now, um, the th tricky thing about ideals, um, and maybe this is a necessary thing about them, is that you don't reach them. <laughs> right? That's what makes them ideals. Um, now, um, but, um, you know, one might ask a similarly structured kind of question. Was Aristotle a scientist? He never looked through a microscope. He didn't believe in the periodic table of elements. He didn't understand anything about the laws of motion. But part of me wants to say, no, he was a scientist. Why? He was committed to a certain endeavor that he executed, given the tools at his disposal, in a way that's kind of admirable. Say, he didn't believe in the theory of evolution. Well, there's a like, well, yeah, like if somebody today were to say, I'm a scientist, I don't know anything about the periodic table, I don't know anything about Newton's laws, I've never looked through a microscope, I think that, um, you know, planets are disks, you know, I mean, you say, no, if you believe those things, you're not a scientist. But that's because what it takes to be a scientist is kind of indexed to where the science of the day is. Similarly, I want to say something like that is at work in democracy, right? The extent to which a society should count for us as democratic is the extent to which it aspires to the ideal. And that's a comparative judgment about, like, where does the state of play stand with respect to political orders? How well is this particular society doing given, the, given what's possible uh, for a society to do? And I think on those metrics, I should say, we're in very bad shape in the United States. Now, I don't know if that means we're not really a democracy or whatever not really a democracy means. Uh, I mean that um, there's a lot that's criticizable in the way that we are, in the way that democracy is being practiced in the country right now. Um, and that there are other, other societies are doing much better at achieving the promise of a democratic society. And yet, you know, here we are commemorating the 100th anniversary of ratification of the 19th Amendment, um, affording white women the right to vote. We had the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Acts. We had an amendment allowing 18-year-olds to vote. One might argue that we've become a more politically open society in that regard but when we describe the interactions and this inequality that we see in our communities, um, in the way in which people interact and where power lies, I, I guess I, I'm having a hard time sorting through that, right? Mm -hmm. More people have been given kind of legal options to participate in our democracy, and yet it seems like our democracy, you're saying, is in decline. Not in decline. That's that's my words, not yours. Um, but but is is in a troubled state. Right, right. So um, you know, I think that part of the issue here has to do with what uh, in the in the in the in the minds of um, the major parties, the politicians, the thought leaders. Sort of, it's a kind of question of what fits into your vision of a democratic society, right? And I I, I take it that. On one popular vision of democracy, legal protections are sufficient, right? So the kind of uh, progress that you've had, civil rights era, right? The Nineteenth Amendment; these are these were these are ways of perfecting democracy because they afforded legal protections, took away legal obstructions, uh, and established. Um, uh, an order in which, um, at least in a formal mode, we can say there's equal protection under the, the law and there's rule of law. You say, okay, well, good, but not gonna, you know, not gonna disparage any of that, great. 
Say, but is that, is, is, is the mere formal, or I, I don't even want to say mere, right? Is the formal, is the legal sufficient? And it seems to me that on an alternate view of, um, you know, sort of what it is to give a plausible shot at approaching and realizing the democratic ideal, say, the legal stuff is really important, don't deny that. It's not sufficient, though, right? Because it's not enough to be protected. You also have to be enabled, right, to, parti to be a participant. And that's where it looks as if we're falling short, maybe in ways because, you know, what it would take by way of policy to, um, to do that enabling work is, you know, uh, too expensive, too much. It conflicts with other kinds of values that people have about markets and all the rest. Maybe that's part of uh, uh, that's part of the explanation. But I think there's another part of the explanation. I think that we as a country have um, sort of um, sold ourselves short in a way, in that it's just not part of the popular conception of what democracy is to see that distinction between you know, being legally entitled and being enabled. We don't see that distinction in the popular mind, at least it doesn't seem to me, or we conflate them. We think that being, you know, being entitled is just enough to be enabled. It's like, no, there's got to be a, an additional, right? You, you have to be protected. You have to also be enabled. And it's something that um, I take it as a country we've stopped expecting of the political order, and so don't get it. If we think about the popular mind, if you will, there's also this strain here about who is actually being mobilized and engaged, right, or enabled, as to use your word, right? So, so elites are tapping into a mentioned, you know, the most likely voters, yeah. right? And we know if we look at partisan polarization, that's actually the norm for our country, yep. right? Um, in in fact, the the, the one period <laughs> that, that wasn't, um, you know, around the 1950s and Eisenhower, that that's sort of the outlier for for the country historically. So we know that polarization is the norm. Um, we we know that there's been a rise in negative affect towards towards the other. I think part of the problem is the structure of this. I, I don't want to just say it's the system, right? But in terms of who is mobilizing whom, right? Who is enabling whom, um, and and in terms of trying to keep it to 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 benefit. The you know those who are already in the power structures, right? right? Um, or to mobilize in new audiences only when it's going to benefit those interests of the existing right. power structures. Um, and and I you know I find that really problematic because it's not just the people's fault, right? It's not just the masses' fault. It, it is also a problem of who's in power. And, you know, this 7 billion plus <laughs> industry, right, um, particularly if we think about elections and campaigning, this $7 billion industry that's paid to just market um, campaigns, or if we talk about the media in terms of, you know, looking at political news and it becoming much more like ESPN, as a recent guest talked with us about, um, you know, that, that it's become more of that than actually the adjudicative function of, of, government of our schools to to bring people into the system yeah I think that's right and so especially if we um, we tend to think as as we're right to um, that uh, one of the um, one of the central sort of tasks if we're evaluating our society for how um, authentically committed it is to the democratic ideal we're looking at the national level politics, things are very, very bleak for all the reasons that Kara just mentioned, right? That, okay, so campaigns are, mar these political campaigns are now marketing campaigns. Same people sell, managing the candidates are also selling toothpaste and cars, right? With the same techniques, by the way, and making gigantic sums of money uh, uh, along the way. Um, we can, there's a social media aspect of this and who's benefiting from what is going on there. <laughs> there's other, there are questions about what's going on there for sure, but whatever's going on there, it's not, it's not all good. <laughs> Let's put it very modestly. 
whatever's going on in social media, it's not all good for democracy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, is that that's non-controversial <laughs> enough? I mean, I'm actually committed to a much, much more directly unfavorable estimation of what goes on on social media from the point of view of what uh, whether it's good or bad for democracy. Um, but, um, uh, you know, so who benefits from that? So it looks as if, you know, from the point of view of like national campaigns and elections and what's going on in D.C. with these, you know, larger than life characters, and that's what they kind of have become. Um, I think all of that is really, really bleak. Now, part of me wants to say this sort of John Dewey thing. It's like, OK, as bad as all that stuff looks, you know, there is, you know, th that's not all that democracy is. That's part of what democracy is. But that's not all of what democracy is. Democracy is also this sort of social ideal that isn't about elections and voting and what goes on in D.C. and passing laws. It's also about, you know, as do we put, you know, meetings of neighbors on corners to talk about stuff and um, that there's this sort of more moral ideal of sort of a, 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 a as he called it, sort of a, a way of community living yeah. that is also part of democracy where, again, I don't want to say that it's all sweetness and light there either, but I think that there are some, you know, sort of beacons of hope that... Um, uh, more grassroots endeavors in the country that are focused on more local uh, political uh, um, uh, engagement that um, are really are, are kind of encouraging uh, that there's so much interest uh, among the American populace in environmental issues, in recycling. Forget about what the corporations are doing. That's going to kill us all. But you know, again, this sort of hope against hope, you know, <laughs> as Du Bois once put it, it's sort of kind of like hope, but, you know, it's not fully hopeful, but it's hope, right? Um, that, um, you know, there are local initiatives that are committed to um, building communities around the right kinds of values for a, a system of self-government among equals, despite all of the pressure from above that's aimed at destroying that. Yeah, and if you, sorry, just on that quick point, we, we show this in class. Um, if you look at uh, public opinion on issues at the local level, it is not as polarized Absolutely. as it is on the national level on the same exact issues. Um, and, and there's much higher trust in local government than there is in national government. Yeah, so let me sort of piggyback on that because there's a, um, you know, the, the, we've got other reasons to think that. Um, forgetting again, if, you know, Side note, you know, one of the things that I, as a sort of political philosopher, find really um, uh, troubling about our current mode of discourse is how often we're talking about the president. Right. Right. But talking about politics is talking about the president and the other agents around him, including, you know, the, you know, the Speaker of the House and all. Like, that's what talking politics is, is so focused on this figure and the opponents at that level of politics. Um, that's not to say we should have lots to say about that. It's like that I talk about our president so much <laughs> feels oppressive to me. Anyway, um, so uh, um, what I was going to say is that when we leave off for the moment the national level politicians, the people in D.C., politics in D.C., and talk about sort of rank and file citizens around the country, not only do you find that at local levels, at the level of local policy, there's far less polarization and, and divide about the issues that affect people in their day-to-day -day lives that local governments have power to do something about. There is, and that's all encouraging. So you ask those people what they think about policies at the national level, and if you ask them in a way that doesn't prime their partisan identity, if you ask them in a way that doesn't cue to them what the Republican or the Democrat is supposed to think, you find out that there's a lot less divide among rank-and-file affiliates even, people who identify with the party. So there's a framing effect that's going on, right? Where you say, like, you know, the Republicans think X. Do you think that too? Repu you pose that question to a subject who's a Republican, they're going to say, yeah, and more, <laughs> right? You ask the question with the, similar, with the same content, just without the partisan cue, right? 
you get far less severe divides among how those who affiliate as Republicans or conservatives and Democrats or liberals. You see that there's far like that the partisan framing, the triggering of the partisan identity, sort of um, uh, does a lot of work in cueing people to give extremely polarized responses to partisan questions, which again is a feature of like, well, the seven, seven billion dollar industry knows this, <laughs> is profiting off of it, and um, is damaging our democracy along the way. But that partisan cueing is, is, is really crucial. Uh, people are less divided, um, even at the national level, about thinking about sort of concrete policy, uh, and even opposing things like the levels of economic inequality. You ask, you know, you poll people without partisan cues about the level of inequality. There's a lot of opposition to it. You ask them those same questions in ways that talk about the liberals and the conservatives and Democrats, Republicans, you know, you know, AOC and her squad versus, you know, and you get far more polarized responses. So there's a lot of framing, uh, a lot of that's going on is due to framing and, and, and priming effects than, than is healthy. It does seem like some of the most productive local initiatives I've ever been involved in, whether it be here in Harrisonburg, Virginia, or in Spartanburg, South Carolina, prior to moving here, were those initiatives where you had diverse groups of people coming together into a room, representing everything from K through 12, higher education, the religious communities, the civic organizations, the neighborhood organizations, where, where, where national politics wasn't even a topic of discussion, nor did we even know where people's ideas were on these macro level That's right. type issues that dominate, you know, certainly cable television and, right. and, and beyond. That's right. and, and we were just simply too focused on solving immediate problems in our community for our neighbors and what I saw from that was that the relationships in those rooms through that problem solving only strengthened. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's really, I mean, that's, ro that's a robust kind of phenomenon. Uh, we see it a lot and it's really encouraging that sort of offsets of like all of the awfulness. <laughs> no, because I do, I feel like as the civic engagement people, we're like the buzzkill in the room, this doom and gloom of yeah. what's going on. And there's a lot of evidence right now yeah, right. of doom and gloom. So I, I really appreciate you bringing up this local phenomenon and recognizing that politics isn't just talking about the president right. and that participating in politics isn't just about having the legal right to vote or that barriers have have That's been right. removed but it's far more complicated than that and it relates to the social relationships and the interactions that we have with each other and perhaps that's where some of the hope can reside that's right i'll give one um um sort of non-scientific, but still almost like an experiment. And so it's not purely anecdotal, but um, so uh, two weeks ago, um, I'd written this piece, uh, this sort of pop philosophy piece called Civility is Harder Than You Think, uh, uh, which was put up at the, the, uh, the, the news site, The Conversation. And the argument was very simple, just what we started off with, you know, our judgments about who's being civil or not, really tracking our partisan allegiances, and we're really, we're, we're, we're very much inclined to see what people who affiliate with the other party do as strange and threatening and weird, so everything they do is gonna look uncivil to us. So I wrote the piece, and it was scheduled to be published the day after the State of the Union address. Mm. So I got an email from the editor uh, early that morning saying, we need a couple of lines at the beginning about Nancy Pelosi tearing up this speech. Yes. Okay, yeah. so there were a few sentences put at the top of it, at the top of the piece that just said, just stated that, like what you saw in that, that episode is really gonna track your partisan allegiances. Didn't say anything about what the right assessment was about that scene. Didn't say anything about the handshake or the no handshake or the tearing up or didn't say anything about what the ultimate judgment should be. It was just saying, look, here's really strong empirical reasons to think that your assessment of what that was is really just going to be a reflection of your own partisanship. And then lays out the argument for that. 
piece came out. It had the photo of Pence and President Trump and Pelosi tearing the thing up onto. It got a healthy number of comments, a good number of reads. The comments were pretty milk toasty, uh, ordinary range of things. A couple of days after it appeared, Yahoo News picked up the story and put it on their site, but changed the title from Civility and Politics is Harder Than You Think to Sorry Donald Trump, Nancy Pelosi Did Not Kill Civility. Comparing the comments threads on these two pieces is really instructive about the power of partisan cues. Because, and I, I had two or three people do code the comments on the Yahoo piece just to make sure I wasn't miscounting things. Upwards of 98% of the comments on, the almost 2,000 comments on the Yahoo piece presume that the piece was, a, was criticizing Donald Trump and defending Nancy Pelosi, despite the fact that their names appear only in the first sentence. And not in a way that just what you see in this is going to... The comments thread is the result of the power of partisan triggers. So there are partisan triggers in the title and people that obstructed, by the way, the, the piece, I put the piece through one of those grammar evaluators. This is accessible to anybody with an eighth grade reading level. So it's not like it was a hard academic piece. Fairly accessible, straightforward. It was 800 words, so it's like a three-minute read or whatever, um, four-minute read. But the partisan triggers, at least on one interpretation of this, the partisan triggers obstructed comprehension but also instigated comment, right? Called forth the need to comment despite the fact that it suppressed comprehension. Like, that's a, okay, that's powerful. Like, if that is a robust kind of finding, and there's some data that suggests that this is not, that, that, that some data that suggests, yeah, yeah, that's what partisan framing can do. Like, well, okay, now what we've got is maybe a lesson for news outlets. Stop putting partisan triggers in the headlines because it, makes people not read the whole thing very carefully, but assume that they've understood it. Um, uh, but maybe it's also just, yeah, one more bit of confirming evidence of the thesis of the paper. Like, yeah, your ideas about your perception of political communication of any kind is going to be filtered through, and therefore, ultimately, your reaction is going to be an expression of your partisan identity. It all feels like politics at the end of the day. But the other thing, what does it do? Right, and I sort of want to like read through these, you know, two thousand comments. Like people, I, I I was called on Yahoo News in a comment. Robert B. Talese is the national idiot. <laughs> like I was like, the person who wrote that, whoever that person may be, I'm sure felt like that was a political act. It felt like political engagement. At the end of the day, it's not even shallow. Right? It's what the. It's what this appeal to partisans kind of invokes in us. It kind of gets us stirred up so that we go and take to the keyboard. We, we talk a lot about wanting, certainly here at, at James Madison University, but college students in general, um, ways to get people more engaged with democracy and more politically active. But I, if political activity is writing, you know, so-and-so is an idiot, or, or going to the town square to shout in favor of one thing while the people across the street shout opposed to it, and they come back and fill out the survey that they're randomly selected for some study on to say, okay, I've been more politically active because I went down and yelled at that person yeah. and called so-and-so an idiot. That's not quite what we're trying to achieve here, That's right. right? We're looking for a more productive, meaningful, problem-solving oriented democracy. Is this an argument for more civility? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah you know, yeah, this is just a real big, like there's lots of moving parts. It's a really big set of problems and questions and puzzles. And, you know, who, yeah, we shouldn't be surprised, right? Democracy is not easy. It's not even easy to think the thoughts, right? You know, it's sort of, it's even harder to do stuff. But you know, even thinking about democracy is such a complicated sort of multi-level, there's all kinds of considerations in play. Um, so yeah, um, 
I, I worry that um, the way in which our um, sort of popular consciousness about democratic politics has been kind of captured and seized by interests that really benefit from polarization and really benefit from the making of more central to people's sense of themselves, their party affiliation. I worry that that has not only made politics much more nasty and you get more of these online threads and that are very uh, um, uh, unpleasant, not only has it done that, but it's also substituted a, a sort of razor-thin conception of the political, right? That is that we've lost sense of like, yeah, politics is hard. It's not about, you're not doing something political by writing, a set, writing even three sentences in a comments thread. That's not an, that, that might be part of what politics is about, but that is in itself not, that's too shallow a conception of what it is to be a participant. It's you're rooting for something. You're expressing your fan affiliation for something. And that's just not, that's not, that's not enough for democracy. Democracy requires something that's much more long-term, much more forward projecting and looking. That might be even a way, I've just stumbled upon a way of sort of thinking about the worry, is that um, the current modes of interaction that are often thought of as political engagement, like the writing on the comments thread, um, these uh, are always so tightly tethered to the moment, right? To what's just happened, or what is happening now, that they fail democratically in a way, and that they're not forward-looking enough, right? You know, again, to put it in sort of quasi-Deweyan terms, you know, problem-solving is not, you know, just tightening the screw, right? In the in the sort of Deweyan sense, problem-solving has this sort of forward-projecting, looking face to it. And so, if democracy is, as Dewey alleged, right, this sort of mode of pooling social intelligence so that the, you know, the, the problems of the public can be addressed in ways that are consistent with democratic ideals, it's got to be forward-looking. And anything that's going on in the present is, is properly democratically political insofar as it's a move towards some future. Right now, it seems so tied to the snap judgment and the thing that's happening right now that it's kind of, um, it's, a, it's, it's a pantomime in a way of, of politics. It's a mimic of politics in a way. The, um, at the time of the last election, I tried a sort of informal experiment. Everyone was talking about the Access Hollywood tape and what's going on with Hillary and the basket of deplorable. Like, it was impossible because I live in Nashville. You know, people don't think twice about just talking to strangers about Stuff, right? Okay, so um, people would regularly, you know, at the coffee shops or just, you know, be out buying groceries. I would sort of ordinarily, people would say, Did you hear about, you know, what Hillary Clinton said? Or did you see that, you know, were you seeing what? You know? So they would mention these sort of calls for this sort of outrage or reaction in politics uh, in the presidential race. And it just as an experiment, I started saying, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm not sure what to think about that yet. And almost invariably, that was taken as either evidence I didn't know what the person was talking about or as some kind of expression that I must disagree with them about what they had mentioned. I'm not sure. So somehow that not knowing what to think about something that's just happened was kind of a... Um, politically inscrutable stance to take as if, well, and by the way, most often it was just like, oh, well, there's a tape of Donald Trump saying this on a, like, yeah, I know that. I just, I'm just not sure what to make of it. And that was seen as like, sort of like, as if, no, what it is to know about politics is to have the judgment, that to have the knowledge is to have the judgment. You say, whoa, that is a profoundly non-democratic Attitude, yeah. like no, no. It, it, there's, if it's if it's politics, you need to think, and the snap judgment, the taking to to the social media site, the taking to the comments thread, feels like politics, but it's not. Yeah. 
your book, um, Overdoing. Overdoing Democracy, Why We Must Put Politics in Its Place. Okay. Can you tell our listeners what the central argument is in that book? So the central argument of, of overdoing democracy is that, um, like all kinds of other good things, um, it's possible to, um, uh, to, put, uh, to place our democratic ambitions and, and endeavors um, uh, at such a central place in our lives that we actually um, undo it. We actually undermine it. So one kind of example that I give in the book is if you imagine somebody and I knew somebody who was like this, devoted her life to physical fitness one day. She decided, I'm just going to become optimally physically fit. That's a perfect, being physically fit is a very, very good thing. Not denying that. Not considering a case where somebody overdoes their exercise routine and so pulls a hamstring and hurts her, her body. That's not what happened to the person I'm describing. What happened to her is that um, she made her workout routine so central to her life that she lost contact with all of her friends. She just didn't have time for friends anymore, didn't have time to go to the movies. and did, So that working out became so the such the singular thing that she was devoted to that all the other good things of her life kind of fell by the side. Now, you might say, that sounds pathological or compulsive, or not sorry, sounds compulsory and uh, obsessive. And I think you'd be right in this case. The thought though is that um, democracy might have a similar structure in that um, the point of being physically fit is not the next workout or more time at the gym. The point of being physically fit is to enable you to engage in activities of other kinds than working out. And I want to suggest that democracy goes badly. We erode some of the capacities that we need in order to perform well as democratic citizens. And therefore, we do democracy less well and lose out on some of the things, the goods that democracy makes available to us when our entire lives become fixated on political activity in furtherance of our partisan political ideals. So the argument is this is maybe some people have said it's kind of paradoxical to have a kind of slipping on a banana peel kind of feel to it. Um, uh, part of what it takes to do well as an engaged participant as a democratic citizen is to sometimes do things that are cooperative and social with others in which politics and partisan objectives and uh, political aspirations are just simply not part of what you're doing. Um, this is something, uh, these sort of non spaces for non-political cooperative activities have eroded in the country in the past 30 years. Um, our, the physical spaces that we inhabit um, have become uh, increasingly politically homogeneous, um, despite the fact that the country has become more diverse along all very positive metrics uh, in the past 30 years, the actual environments we inhabit as individuals in our day-to-day -day lives have become shockingly politically homogeneous, such that it's now, you know, really uncommon to, in your casual going about in your day, to encounter others who are politically of a different profile from you. Now, what that means, that might itself not be objectionable, what that means is that it's becoming easier and easier for us to get our conception of what um, those who are politically on the other side of things from us are like from the people on our own side. And that creates occasions for strategy and distortions and all the rest. And that makes us really bad at democracy. Because if democracy is anything, it's like, yeah, the people on the other side, within very, very broad constraints, people on the other side, even when they lose, they're my equals. They're entitled to an equal say. And when politics becomes all we ever do together, it becomes harder and harder to maintain that stance, the stance of seeing the opposition is politically misguided in some sometimes very severe ways, but nonetheless entitled to an equal say. It's like we give up on that, we give up on democracy. One way to make us less capable of, of holding those two commitments together is to make politics everything we are we everything that we do together, or the only thing that we do together. So the book is an argument for saying 
the reason why politics is so important is because when it goes well, it creates opportunities for us to do other kinds of things with our lives with others, to participate in activities that might not have a political valence, but are devoted to relationships of love and support and creativity and care. And when everything becomes organized around, filtered through our partisan identities, we become bad at the politics and we lose the opportunities for the other goods, you know, the non-political goods that democratic societies are supposed to make available to us. That's what the book is about. You might not have to read it now. <laughs> <laughs> But we do hope you will click through the link in yeah. the podcast feed and buy the book and read it. <laughs> if you're interested also in hearing more about the book, um, Bob did a fantastic interview with Jenna Spinelli at the McCourtney Institute at Penn State University. Democracy Works is the podcast, so you can listen and subscribe to Democracy Works as well. So we ask all of our guests the same question. What would you do to strengthen democracy? What I would do uh, to strengthen democracy is try to encourage citizens to explore activities in venues and forums where they can engage with others in cooperative activities in which they have no idea what the political profiles are of the other participants. That's not the proposal to go and invite your political opponents over to lunch or to go and meet some real living and breathing uh, conservatives if you're a liberal or liberal if you're a conservative. That might be a good thing to do, I don't know. Uh, I think that one way to strengthen democracy is to create arenas and forums where people can interact in which, in, 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 in activities where they don't merely suppress or try to bracket off their political differences but there are activities in which politics is just not part of what they're doing. And the fact that we have trouble thinking about what that could be like is, I think, a symptom of a real deep democratic pathology rather than a counterexample to the proposal. Dr. Robert Talese, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been wonderful. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production was done by the talented and tenacious Leah Jackson, a senior in the School of Media Arts and Design at James Madison University. Our digital guru, Randy Budnickus, director of digital marketing at JMU, does the syndication for us. Our theme song is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU Civic, and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Learn more about the Madison Center online at jmu.edu civic. Until next time.